we are continuing, actually we are concluding today, we are concluding our sermon series called Journey to the Cross today. We're wrapping it up, finishing it off. And um, in doing so, um, I want to ask you a question at the beginning here. Um, have you ever been guilty, I mean, maybe it's just me, you ever been guilty of having some bad attitude or bad behavior or bad whatever, but finding a way to justify it as if it really wasn't bad at all? Like you found a way to say, well, you know, have you ever done that before? I know that probably you haven't, but sometimes we're good at justifying our bad behavior. And yeah, not you, right? But, uh-huh. Case in point right here. So anyhow, um, what we do sometimes is um, we, we, and I'll tell you, people are good at this all the time. It doesn't matter if you're religious or not. Humans are good. There's a lot of things humans do that humans all do. But sometimes there's things that Christians do that are more frustrating because, well, they're supposed to be Christians, for one, and, but they, we have the same bad behavior. And then worse, we justify our bad behavior spiritually. We find a spiritual twist on our bad behavior. That's the worst. How do you get by with that? It's terrible. And so as we get into this, as we talk about this, um, one of the things I've seen in church culture, um, religious, religious culture, is uh, Christians who have anger or judgmental spirits, or all sorts of things, and they spin it as if somehow, oh no, I'm just, you know, this is not bad. And um, in fact, I grew up in a very, uh, you know, fundamentalist Christian background where they were very excellent at, in, at being so focused on the externals that they inadvertently trained everyone to be judgmental. And I remember in that culture watching some people who would have the worst attitudes, arrogance, judgment, hypocrisies, anger, and they would always spin it. They would always spin it as if somehow it was spiritual. Because that's what, that's what we do. In fact, you try to tell them otherwise. And it's pointless. You learned a long time ago, you can change nobody. You, you just can't change somebody. If you're not married, you might not have learned that yet, but you'll learn it. <laughs> you don't change anybody, okay? Uh, God's got to do that. They've got to be willing to do that. You can't change anybody. All you can do is pray, be, the, be a good example. And hope that uh, God and the Spirit, and His Spirit and truth works in people's lives. That's all we can do. But here's the thing. And you know that, know that as a spouse, you know that as a parent, you know that as anybody. But here's the thing. Um, I remember growing up and in, in watching some people who were, had an angry version of Christianity. You know, we're better than others. Here's what's wrong with culture. You know, they say behind, maybe there were pastors standing behind the, the pulpit, the sacred desk. Or, or maybe they were um, Christians on social media. Facebook or in, in, in community with each other or in Sunday school classes talking to each other. And they would be just critical spirits and this and that. And sometimes when you called them on it, you'd say, hey, the Bible says don't judge lest you be judged. And when I, I always marveled whenever we would say that because those kinds of people, those religious people would always have two answers for that. One answer was, well, that's not what that verse really means. That's exactly what that verse really means, by the way. But um, they would always find, say, no, there's another verse somewhere where the word judge is used that seems to imply that we can judge. I'm going to ignore the context and take this other one out of context because that's what we do. We twist the scriptures to fit what we want to do and how we want to behave, right? That's how we do it. We just kind of wrangle them to work in our advantage. And so um, if, if I can ignore context. I'll just find something. We do this with our politics. We do this with our religion. We will find any means necessary to justify our view and put the other side down, despite the facts. So the people, you say, don't judge, lest you be judged. And that, that would be their first excuse. The other thing they would do is say this. Well, 
you're judging me for being judgmental, so you're doing the same thing. So in other words, they're untouchable. They can go ahead and be judgmental, but if you called them on it, if you said, oh, you're being judgmental, oh, but you're judging me for being judgmental, so see, you can't say anything. So they had this sacred, you know, free, you know, get out of jail card for being judgmental people. And you're like, you know. And, and my point is this. And I'm not trying, you can't fix anybody. If, if any of us, what our struggles are, I'm not here to, to try and tell you anything. God's Spirit's got to lead all of us. Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying we got to stop justifying bad behavior. And one of the ways I've seen it done in, in some religious circles is we'll use Jesus as our excuse. So I've heard people say before, well, you know, Jesus one time, he was angry. and He, he preached some hard sermons. He, he said some harsh things. He did, by the way. A couple times, I mean, it wasn't his norm, but there was a record of in Matthew 23, kind of around the journey to the cross time here. Jesus preached to, and he was talking to the, he was actually having a conversation with the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and he calls them a generation of snakes and vipers, calls them hypocrites, and he says they're white as sepulchers. I mean, he was rough. Um, oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's the other thing. He came into the money room, and, and, and we're going to see that today's story, actually. He's gonna, he came into the temple, and he threw over the money tables of the money changers and, and chased them out of there. So I've heard people say, see, Jesus was angry and uh, harsh and attacking those people he disagreed with. So that's how I am. The problem with that twist, of tr that twist of reality is this. First of all, that's not the body of who Jesus was. Like the, the vast body of who Jesus was, was so full of grace and compassion and mercy and love and healing and helping and kindness, right? That you can't look at these a couple exceptional moments where he had a reason for doing something and say, this exceptional moment to the rule of his behaviors, normally, is justifying my rule, my, my normal behavior all the time to people. You can't do that. You have to understand why did Jesus seem to be out of character almost here. Was there a reason for it? Instead of saying, that's why I do the, that's why I treat people bad all the time. Because Jesus one time threw the tables over. That has nothing to, there's no reality there. John, who was closest to Jesus, was the last one to write about Jesus. And in his later letters called 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, uh, John wrote and said, after being in the presence of Jesus himself, he determined that God is love. Not that God is loving. God is loving. Not that God has love. He does. But that God is love. That's the predicate nominative for you English people. That's the saying. They're interchangeable. God and love. That is the essence of his character. That Peter and others who were close to him the whole time, their summary of his life is that he went around doing good and helping people. And so the people who sometimes will look at Jesus having this harsh moment and say, well, see, Jesus was that way, so that's why I'm that way. I would ask them, do people in your orbit or people around you who know you, would they say that you are love and that you went about doing good helping people or would they say that you're kind of a jerk? Because Jesus was known for all these awesome characteristics with a couple exceptional moments for a good reason that we're going to see why those reasons happen today. It's important to understand that. Otherwise, we'll spin what Jesus did into justifying our bad behaviors. And again, I'm not saying that to fix anyone because if anyone's listening to this today and you're determined to treat people bad or have a, a, a really bad worldview, you're going to do it and I'm not going to fix that. But if you today want to understand why and what and, and be on guard and, and kind of push away the bad thinking, if you want to understand what it should be to be like Jesus, I hope that today's story will help us. And so we're going to look at the events 
on our last Sunday of Journey to the Cross. We're going to begin in the Gospel of Luke as we read about the, what we call the event of Palm Sunday. That's what today is, by the way. Today's Palm Sunday. Um, it's the triumphal entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem. Now, if you were to read the four accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four accounts tell this same story, but they all tell different details, as usual. So we're primarily going to look at Luke's version, because Luke does a great job. Luke tells a very good version of this, but he leaves one detail out. I'll mention that later. But um, we'll look at Luke mainly, then we'll peek at a couple others briefly along the way. But this is the triumphal entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem during Holy Week. It was a holiday or a holy daytime in the Jewish culture because they were getting ready to celebrate Passover, which is at the beginning of April on their calendars. It was the beginning of their new year, basically, started in April. That's how they ran their calendar. And um, it started off with basically their version of Independence Day. They were set free from slavery in Egypt and brought out and brought to the Promised Land. And so Holy Week is a big deal, and it was kind of the beginning of festivals that would last for two months, basically. And people would flood into Jerusalem from other areas, and they would sometimes stay there for weeks or months and fill up all the hotels and rent out all the Airbnbs and all that stuff. So it was kind of a hop in time in Jerusalem. And Jesus is going to make his entrance into the city during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and make his entrance into the city. And I want you to follow the story with me in Luke 19, verse 28. After telling this story, Jesus went on towards Jerusalem, walking ahead of his disciples. As he came to the towns of Bethage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying that colt, just say, the Lord needs it. By the way, early Bible reference that Jesus was a Colts fan. He uh, wanted to bring the Colts close to him. He wanted them to be close by. He was, the Lord needed that. He needed that, so just wanted to point that out. Anyhow, so they went and found the colt, just as Jesus had said. And sure enough, as they were untying it, the owners asked them, why are you untying that colt? And the disciples simply replied, the Lord needs it. So they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it for him to ride on. As he rode along, the crowd spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. So a picture, he's riding along into Jerusalem. People are laying down their garments. And this is where Luke leaves one important detail off, and that's fine. Luke does a great job telling the story. But if you read Matthew, Mark, and John's version, they add one important detail. And that is that the people didn't only lay their garments on the road. They also laid down palm branches on the road as well. Their garments and palm branches, and Jesus rode along, and, and it was kind of a parade processional, which is why we call it Palm Sunday. And as they laid these branches and palm, palm branches and coats down, Jesus rides in, and they begin to praise him. In fact, let's read a little bit about that. Verse 37, when he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout, and to sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen. These are the followers of Jesus who had been around because they had been following him. So they had seen so many awesome things he had done. They would seen blind eyes made to see and deaf ears made to hear and, and crippled people made to walk. And they had seen multitudes fed with almost nothing. And they've seen uh, demons cast out. They've seen... Um, 
dead raised to life. They've seen, they've heard his teachings. They've seen his compassion, his love, his healing power. And they were crazy about him. And so remember, as Jesus is entering Jerusalem for this, uh, you know, feast of unleavened bread and Passover that was coming, as he's entering in, you have to remember that what's going on is there's, a, there's two crowds, a crowd that loves him and a crowd that hates him. The larger crowd loved him because of all those reasons we just mentioned. But there was that religious crowd, that religious crowd that hated him. And it, it was not all religious people, but it was the religious leaders who controlled Jerusalem. Because as so often is the case with religion, people will eventually pollute it and turn it into something that is about their own gain. And for the religious leaders of that time, it was about their power, their control, their wealth, their prestige, and their privilege. And they were protecting what was theirs. They were nationalistic and they were, they were um, religious and they twisted everything that God ever said to fit their agendas and to protect what was, was sacred to them and to push anyone else who opposed them or who threatened them, to push them far away and demonize others. As they, basically what we do today is what they were doing. A religious crowd. And um, he, uh, and so Jesus, this crowd hated him because he was a threat to them. He didn't play by their rules. They wanted the Messiah to come but they wanted the Messiah to come kick out Rome and put them in power. And Jesus was coming along saying, I'm here for different reasons and I don't get along with you guys. Because, not because he didn't love them, but because he was busy helping the people that they, they overlooked. He was ministering to the people that were ungodly. He was eating with those people and helping those people and, and being a part of their community. People who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. And Jesus liked people who were nothing like him. And as, as Jesus is ministering to these people and, and helping so many, the religious crowd is like, who in the world is he? That's not how we do things here. That's not how we do things in our religion. That's not how we do things in our church. They didn't like it. And they opposed him and they wanted to get rid of him. So they want to actually kill him at this point. And the crowds loved him. And the crowds are pouring into Jerusalem for the feast. They're pouring in. And the followers who had seen Jesus do all these wonderful things and are seeing him come into the city are just celebrating with the palm branches and the coats they think they're celebrating the king who's arriving and Jesus is saying, I'm here to lay down my life, but no one understands it yet. He'd been saying it, but no one was listening very well, as is often the case. Verse 38, here's what the people were saying in verse 38. They were saying, blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in highest heaven. Now what they're doing here is they are fulfilling an old ancient Hebrew scripture prophecy. If you were to read in what we call our Old Testaments, the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9, I think Nathan posted it on Facebook today on our church Facebook page, the verse, is, is a prophecy in ancient times of the coming Messiah who would walk into the city of Jerusalem. And um, uh, it, was just, it was just a prophecy being fulfilled. And they're, they're laying their palm branches and their garments are praising his name. But some of the Pharisees, the next verse, some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers from saying things like that. Like they know, they're basically saying he's the Messiah and they, they don't want to acknowledge that. Because he didn't fit into their box. Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that, they said. And Jesus replied, if they keep quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. Nothing's going to stop this moment from happening. If you silence them, the rocks will cry out. And so Jesus rides in. What's interesting is John gives us an extra detail I don't want you to miss. In John chapter 12 and verse 17, he adds this. 
Many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead, and they were telling others about it. So here's, here's Jesus, and here he's with Lazarus, and John is pointing this out because John tells us the story of Lazarus two weeks ago, if you were, were with us. That was John chapter 11. And so John is saying, look, um, you know, people were seeing Lazarus, and he's in the crowd, and they wanted to, they wanted to tell others about this miracle because Jesus, as long as, he was, as long as Jesus was alive and well, he could apparently raise others from the dead if he wants to. So this was the buzz. In fact, Lazarus was, as we saw last week, he was the hot topic. He was a party favorite, except for to the religious leaders who wanted Jesus dead. They also wanted Lazarus dead. But the people were excited about him. And so it says here, verse 18, that that was the reason that so many people went out to meet Jesus. Because they had heard about this miraculous sign. Then the Pharisees, the Pharisees would be the religious leaders and the control people and the people who were gaining from the system, as usual, the men in charge. The Pharisees said to each other, there's nothing we can do. Look, they said, everyone's gone after him. Everyone's gone after Jesus. And by the way, they're not celebrating when they say that. They're not saying, everyone's gone after Jesus, yay. No, they're saying, oh man, they're not following us. They're following Jesus. They're not following, they're not, they're, we're losing control. And, and he doesn't play by our playbook. And this is a horrible thing. They were really upset. Well, before we get to the coup de grace, the big event I want us to see today about Jesus having an outburst that we ought to ask ourselves, why did he have one? You need to see one more part of the story first. And if you don't miss, if you miss this part of the story, you'll miss part of the point of the outburst. So don't miss this part. In Luke 19, we were just reading Luke. Let's go back to there. The very next verse, verse 41. But as he came closer to Jerusalem, and as he saw the city ahead, Jesus began to weep. I said this two weeks ago. I'll say it again. It's not very many times in the Bible where you'll see Jesus weeping. Not very often is Jesus weeping. When he does, we ought to pay attention. When Lazarus died, he wept to see a friend laid to rest and people he loved grieving. But here he's weeping over the city for a different reason. And by the way, this is important. Because some people who would take the emotions that Jesus is going to show in the city the next day, the, the anger that he seemed to display when he kind of came in and dealt with the people in the temple, they would say, well, he was angry, so that's how I am. They would miss this part. Don't miss this part. Jesus was not only compassionate and gracious and caring and loving and sacrificial, but he was driven by the emotion of tenderness, and he wept. See, it's the part of him that was heartbroken for the people and frustrated by the things that were happening that weren't right. And he's outside the city, and he begins to weep. And what does he say? Verse 42, he says, How I wish today, don't, don't miss this tone here, how I wish today that you of all people, that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it's too late, and peace is hidden from your eyes. He says, look, I've come to bring you hope. I'm here, for, I'm here with good news, the, the good news of God's love. That's what I've been about. And people have been standing in the way of that thing, and the religious community has been opposing it, and, and a bunch of you are here to worship, and you, you don't, you've missed it. I'm right here. How I wish today that of all, of all people, I love the whole world. I'm here for everybody, but, but especially you, the descendants of Abraham, 
the nation that which I made my prophecies, that, from which I was born. You of all people, I wish you understood the way of peace. But with tears down his face, he says, now it's too late. Now peace is hidden from your eyes. And then he makes a prophecy that is often overlooked, one of the most amazing prophecies that was later fulfilled. He says in verse 43, he, it's bad, it's bad news. He says, before long, he's, he's got tears streaming down his, he's weeping. Before long, he says, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and enclose you in from all sides. From every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize it when God visited you. And Jesus was saying to them as, look, you've been looking for a Messiah. And when God came to you, you're so busy wanting to get Rome out of your life, to have your control back. You're not interested in following God. You're interested in your own power, your own ways, your own benefits, how, how, what works for you, what's best for you. Your control, your wealth, your ahead, your privilege. And you're so concerned about that that you've opposed people who need God. And you've opposed, and you've, you've had, you know, fights as a nation and, and, and politics that are divisive. And you're just so, he says, you're so messed up. And here I am, he says, here I am. And I could bring you back into the way of peace. Back into the way of good news, the way of hope and God's love. But you can't see it. And he says, what's going to happen is it's going to get bad one day. And he prophesies in those verses there something that he prophesied elsewhere in, in, in Matthew 24 or 25 to uh, his disciples in more detail. And it's one of the most amazing prophecies because about over less than four decades, less than four decades later after he said these words, within four decades, the people of Israel who rejected Jesus would also begin to get politically stirred up against the outside influence of Rome they would cause trouble. Rome would send their forces down, surround the city. They'd be angry at having to come down. They'd be angry at the siege. Eventually, they'd starve the people out. They'd eventually break into the walls of Jerusalem. They'd go inside and kill men and women and children. And Rome would take their temple, burn it down, destroy it. Every single stone knocked off the other. Some pushed down into the valley below. Exactly as Jesus knew it would happen. And he said, it's because you didn't recognize when God visited you, I came to bring you a better way. But you were so sure of yourself. You were so sure that you were right. And you had God figured out. And you were right in your views and your attitudes and your politics and your attitude towards culture. And you were so sure of yourself that you missed it. When God was right here to show you a better message, a better way, you just couldn't hear what I was saying. And he wept at the hard-hearted, stubborn, religious ways of a bunch of people who named him as their God. I said this earlier. The world's full of wacky people. What's really heartbreaking was when people who name God, people who call themselves God's people, when we're the ones who can't see the message of God because of our bad ideas that we justify because we're spiritual. And Jesus is brokenhearted. Well, what happens next is this. Jesus actually rides down into the city that night he, they, they, the triumphal entry, the palm branches, the tears on the Mount of Olives, right? He rides down into the city, looks around, and leaves. That's what he does. He's, he's got to spend the night somewhere, and Jerusalem's full. Again, all the VRBOs and the Airbnbs were all booked. I mean, he's going to stay back in Bethany nearby, the nearby town of Bethany, which is where his friends Lazarus and Mary and Martha lived. 
It's basically a suburban town real close by. He goes out and sleeps every night in Bethany nearby and comes into the city by day. So he comes into the city, looks around, and leaves. But the next day, he comes in with a bang. Let's see the story. Mark tells it best. Mark 11, verse 15. When they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. Many of the Jewish people, from their ancient religious practices, would come to the temple and make animal sacrifices for different reasons. Perhaps it was to celebrate and note the birth of a child. They had certain protocols for that. They'd bring a, 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 sheet, a lamb. Or if they were poor, they'd do two turtle doves. They couldn't afford a lamb. Or perhaps they were doing uh, atonement offerings or other things like that, holy, holy days. And so for people, the idea of coming to the temple and having this extra special moment with God was part of their spiritual journey. And as they arrived in Jerusalem, and as they had these moments to bring sacrifices, people who lived there, people in control, the religious elite, began to think, hey, they got to come here. We can monetize this thing. Yeah, baby. They're like, you know, I mean, tell these people, don't bring your livestock far from home with you. Just come unencumbered. We'll sell it to you when you get here at a slightly raised price, of course, because of inflation, I mean, obviously. And then, if you're poor, don't worry about it. We've got, we got plenty for you. We'll keep raising the prices. But hey, you'll get your sacrifices. We'll get a little extra rich. These are the same religious people who hated the tax collectors among them who cooperated with Roman government because they hated that government. And they, they hated the tax collectors for cooperating and sometimes pocketing the money difference. But the same religious people were busy using God as a way to monopolize people's wealth and pocket the money difference themselves. And so they're, they're, people are coming and they're selling them at inflated prices, necessary sacrifices. They're like, if you want to sacrifice, to, if you want to be here, here's the protocols. You've got to do this. And you've got to buy this to do it. At our rates, by the way. And they were monetizing and making it a business instead of a place for people to come and draw close to God. And Jesus walks in and he grabs, he, one, one version says he grabbed a whip. <laughs> he says, driving them out of there. And then it says this. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He's like taking the tables, he's knocking the tables over. He's knocking over the chairs of the, those who sold the doves. By the way, the doves are important because the doves were the, the animals that he sold to the poor people the ones who couldn't afford lambs. So in other words, Jesus is saying, you are taking advantage of the poor. You're taking advantage of the poor. And, and the people who are coming who need God, and they, oh, he was mad. He's throwing, the, he's chasing them out of there. And he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. Do you see why Jesus was upset? The, the healer, the miracle worker, the preacher of grace, the, the lover of mankind, the good news messenger, the, the, the prince of peace. But he saw something that we don't want to miss. By the way, me, before I get there, let me see, show you what he says to them. He does all that, and in verse 17, he says to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. In other words, he says, my, this, this is powerful. This place is for all nations. By the way, they've done that wrong too. They kind of had their special spots where people who are not from their nation of their race could only go to certain parts of the temple. They had certain courtyards. And Jesus is like, my place is supposed to be for all nations. 
the house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. You've lost the purpose of why this place exists. It exists for people to come closer and feel connected to, have a spiritual pilgrimage, to feel closer to God, but you've turned it into something altogether different for your own purposes. Shame on you. Here's what I want you to notice. Jesus' anger and Jesus' condemnation was consistently against one group of people and one group of people only. It was against the religious leaders who stood in the way, who represented him by name, but didn't behave like him at all. Who, who claimed God's name and authority, but did not represent God at all. That when you read your Bible, see it for yourself. He wasn't out there chasing out the, uh, the prostitutes and the bar owners and the bad people and the people who voted wrong. And, ah, he was out there chasing out religious people. Here's the thing. When, when a woman was caught in the act of adultery, I mean, she was caught. Not like she had a, not, not a woman who had a bad past. A woman who was caught in the very act of adultery, somehow, brought before Jesus by the religious people who wanted him to condemn her. He stands up for her, chases them away, gets down the ground where she's knocked down, gets down the ground next to her and says, hey, your accusers are gone and I don't condemn you either. Hey, get up. You're free to go. Do better. Do better from now on. From now on, change, but no condemnation for you. This is the Jesus for the people who just loved and fed and helped and cared for others. But when he came to the people who named God in their titles and authority and represented him wrongfully, that's where he was upset. You're, you're turning this into a business. You're, taking it, you're making people think that coming to God has to be some draining, expensive venture at your inflated prices to buy necessary sacrifices so they can even come into my temple. Get out of here. His sermons, where he called them a den of vipers and snakes and hypocrites and all the other stuff he said, was to that same group of people. He says, quit making God look like something he's not, making him look bad to people who need him because you're representing him so poorly. This is important to understand. Jesus, Jesus never said, get out of my way. He only said, get out of their way. In other words, Jesus was never saying, I'm here to be somebody, I'm the man. Get out of my way. Quit holding me back. The closest Jesus ever came to saying something that could be twisted to say, get out of my way, was when a couple of years, maybe earlier, he's telling his disciples how that he was there to die on the cross and rise again. And they didn't understand this. And Peter decides he's going to correct Jesus. So he puts his arm on Jesus' shoulder, says, Jesus, come here, and walks him away from the, from the conversation and says, quit talking that way. And Jesus like pulls away from Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. That was as close as Jesus ever came to saying something like that. And, but, but what was his point? His point was, I came to die. I came to sacrifice. I came to serve. I came to help people. Quit trying to tell me not to do that. I'm not here to be famous right now, to be rich, to be powerful. I'm here to help others get back to God who made them and God who loves them. Don't stand in the way of that. He never said, get out of my way. See, the problem with our anger, a lot of our anger is get out of my way anger. A lot of our anger is, that's not convenient for me. That's not how I like things to be done. That's not how I like things to be run. That's not how I feel about religion, politics, community. That's not how I like it done in church. That's not how I want this. Get out of my way. Don't make me feel bad. Hey, family, hey, wife, hey, children, hey, hey spouse, hey, whoever. Get out of my way. Don't hold me back. 
Jesus didn't do that. Jesus said, get out of their way. Get out of the way of people who need to know that God loves them, who God wants to connect with those people and bring them back to him. And you are standing in the way. Get out of their way. That's where his anger was. It was for the people he loved and for the people who claimed to name God standing in the way. Before he corrected them, he wept outside the city for their hard hearts. By the way, you know what's interesting? Right after Jesus chased out the money changers, right after he threw their tables over and chased them all out of the room and said, this is the house of prayer, you know the very next thing that Jesus did? The very next thing he did? Well, Matthew tells us in Matthew 21, 14, it says the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Isn't that interesting? He's in the temple and all of a sudden now, that the people who were in the way are out of the way. Now that the people who claim to be the God card are out of the way, now the blind, now the lame, now the poor, now they can get inside. Now the needy, now the lost can be found. Now people can come in. Now he's able to use that space and say, hey guys, God wants you. Come here, come here, come here. The leading priests and the teachers of the religious law saw these wonderful miracles and heard even the children in the temple. I'm gonna pause here. The religious leaders had heard about the miracles. Jesus had done miracles all over the place, in synagogues here and synagogues there, in streets and towns here and there. But now they're standing in the very holy temple. And right there in the temple before their very eyes, they're watching Jesus do those same miracles in their presence. And they're hearing the children in the temple shouting, praise God for the son of David. And the religious leaders were indignant. They asked Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? Yes, Jesus replied. Haven't you ever read the scriptures? I love that. What a burn. It's just funny. They're like, don't you hear what the kids are saying? He's like, don't you read your Bible? I mean, seriously. Like, don't you hear? Yes, I know what they're saying. And, and don't you hear, what, don't, didn't you read the Bible verse where it says, you've taught the children and infants to give you praise? These kids are doing what the scriptures prophesied they would do for the Messiah. Guys, you're not listening. God's doing something right now. You're missing it. And the enemies of Jesus were desperate at this point. And Mark tells us in verse 18, Mark eleven eighteen, when the leading priests and teachers of religious law heard what Jesus had done, basically how he had thrown out their business efforts, and made the temple a place for people who were far from God to, to, to know that God loved them and not for a group of people who kept control of things the way they wanted them. When Jesus corrected that problem and, and opened the doors back up, when the leading priests and teachers of religious law heard what he'd done, they began planning how to kill him. That's kind of funny if you think about it. If you've been the last two weeks, we keep seeing the same phrase. They began planning how to kill Jesus. Like they did that three times. When did they begin? But I think along the way, what was happening is, is they were like saying, we got to kill this guy. Later on, they're like, okay, guys, we got to kill this guy. How are we going to do it? Later on, they're like, okay, guys, we need a real plan. So they're upping their game. They're upping their ante. But they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teaching. And all of this sets the stage for this week. It's Holy Week. All of this, we're going to stop reading scripture today. I'll make a couple observations and we'll be done. All of this sets the stage for Holy Week. In the next few days after this, Jesus would have the Last Supper in the upper room with his disciples. 
In the last few days after this, he would sit at the table, and he would institute something very powerful. He would tell them that he was changing the entire meaning of Passover. This was the kind of stuff that, that made the religious people so mad. Because Jesus would say things that you can't say unless you're God. And they didn't believe he was God, so they didn't like it. He was basically saying all this time Passover had always been a religious, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, a national holiday. It was a day where they celebrated their freedom from slavery in Egypt a long time earlier. And Jesus was saying, it was, it, it was their July 4th, basically, their Independence Day. And Jesus was saying, what you have celebrated as independence, as a nation from slavery, has always been a picture of what I'm about to do for the whole world. And so in the upper room at the Last Supper, he took communion. And he said, from now on, when I want you to do this, it's not just for Jewish people celebrating their nation's independence. It's for all nations everywhere, all people who believe on me, to remember what I'm doing for the whole world. And remember my body that's broken for you and my blood that's shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he changed everything. That's crazy stuff. That's like, you don't do that unless you're God. I guess he pulled it, when he called his own death and resurrection and pulled it off, he kind of made an exclamation point on that story. So anyhow, this is all leading up to that. This, this takes us to the verge where Jesus goes into the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples, and he prays, and he sweats so profusely. It was like great drops of blood almost. He was begging the Father, don't let this cup pass from me. It's where he's arrested by Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him with a temple guard around him. It's where he's taken into a Jewish trial and condemned to death by the religious leaders. The next morning, to be taken into Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, and given the approval for crucifixion with the most horrendous, horrendous brutal, form of execution for the worst of criminals where he would die where he would rise again three days later. It's all coming this week. And this Friday we'll celebrate Good Friday. When I, I keep saying celebrate. It's really not a celebration because Jesus suffered and died. It's more that we will remember Good Friday and honor what Jesus did for us for our sins. And then Sunday we'll celebrate the resurrection. Before today, for today as we wrap up, Here's the question I have. Where, where are you? Where are you? Where are you in the story today? When we read the Bible stories, we tend to see ourselves as the heroes, don't we? We're the good guys. If there's the good guys and bad guys, we're the good, we relate to the good guys. If there's passages about blessing for the good people, that's us. If there's punishment for bad things, that's them, you know. So we always see ourselves in the best possible light in the scripture. But where are we in the story today? That's my question. Where are we? Are we, um, we're, not, we're not Jesus, right? So here's the question. Here's the question for you and me. Are we in the way, are we in the way, or making a way for people to get to Jesus? Are we the ones in the way for people to get to Jesus, or are we making a way? Are we the religious ones who name God and through our arrogance and through our judgmental spirits and our own hypocrisies and our own condemnation and our anger that we righteously justify as being whatever because Jesus or whatever. Are we in the way? Through our traditions, through our traditions, are we in the way? Through our customs, through our pride, through our protection of our privilege, are we in the way from culture that needs God's love? But we've said, stay away because we're right and you're wrong. Are we in the way? Or are we the ones making a way, making a way to get people to Jesus. Which are we today? Which are we? Is our anger keeping people away 
Is our judgmental spirits, our, our arrogance, our harshness, our condemnation? Are we passionate about the wrong things? Do we deceive ourselves and justify wrong passions? Do we protect what's ours, what's in our best interest? Or do we serve graciously and humbly? Make an easy, humble path like Jesus did. Gratitude towards him and humble hearts to get people the same hope that God brings us. I'm afraid for so many churches, we hold on to things that are sacred to us and traditional and important to us that keep people, that stand in the way of people, have to climb over all of our other stuff just to get to Jesus. That's horrible. I think for too many Christians, our attitudes about culture and the world and our nation and other things on Facebook and other places is, is just, is, we're in the way of people getting to Jesus because we're turning people off. We've got to ask ourselves, are we in the way or are we humbly stepping away and making a way for the good news? To connect people whom God loves like he loves us back to him. Which are we? Let's make sure, let's make sure that we are representing God for who he is. Not for how it will benefit us, our worldview, our politics, our preferences, or our controls. Let's make sure we're representing God for how, for who he really is. To a world full of people that he loves every bit as much as he loves you and me. With his arms open wide to everybody else. Do they believe that? Do they know that when they see us? Let's make sure we're representing him well. Because that's what Holy Week's all about. The gospel, the good news, that God is love. And in God so loved the world that he gave his son who died and rose again. Let's make it easy for others. Let's make it plain.